Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about an interesting, intriguing book titled A Nasty Little War, The Western Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution. This book tells a pretty extraordinary story, honestly, of how a number of countries in kind of the category of the West tried to reverse the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. Obviously, a lot happened that is relevant to that time period and has a lot of resonances for today. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, Anna Reid, to the podcast to tell us all about it. Anna, thanks so much for being here. And thank you very much for having me on. Could we start off with you telling us a bit about yourself and explaining why you decided to write this? Well, I'm a journalist turned historian. I was based in Kiev for three years in the mid-90s. Um, and I've since written um, four books on, on on Ukraine and Russia, all historical, um, a couple of them with a bit of sort of travel writing mixed in. And the, the, the Russian Civil War, obviously, is was formative for the Soviet Union, you know, more, more, it was where the, you know, it was where the sort of Soviet Union was forged, really, you know, more than the revolution itself. So, you know, it militarised, it brutalised, you know, it brought about a mass typhus epidemic, mass famine, it also brought Stalin to the fore. So, you know, if, if, if one wants to understand the Soviet Union, you have to know about the civil war. And when I was, I was researching a book on a colonial history of Siberia. It was a book about the indigenous peoples of Siberia. When I was researching that, I read a memoir written by General General William Graves, who led American forces in Siberia during the intervention. And um, he, he, he didn't want to be there at all. He had been looking forward to going and uh, commanding a division in France um, when he, you know, the, the First World War was still going on. And he, you know, he then he got diverted very unwillingly to Siberia, and he loathed his Russian counterparts. He was supposed to be supporting, um, and he he did his best to keep his troops out of fighting as much as possible. Um, but but the whole, you know, his whole account of the period is so interesting because he's such an outsider. He's seeing it through, you know, completely out outsider eyes. And the whole idea of these American doughboys sort of tooling up and down the Trans-Siberian Railway on sort of peacekeeping duties, you know, in, in the middle of this chaotic civil war was sort of so extraordinary and appealing. It's sort of, you know, um, it's sort of, you know, Frank Smith from Michigan, um, you know, sort of in the middle of Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, you know, there are lots of good books already in English on the civil war. And there are also some quite sort of specialist military history books on, particularly on the campaign in the north. Um, but but there's nothing about the intervention per se taking in all the you know the whole thing and everywhere it happened. So, you know, the Allied troops were sent to sort of five different places: to the far north, um, Archangel and Murmansk, to Siberia, to the Caspian, to southern Russia and Ukraine and also to the Baltic. So you've got this big military effort, very spread out, you know, covering a vast geographical area. Um, and 
you know, it was just a great, it's, it's, you know, it's a great subject. It, you know, it's, it's very, it's important. I mean, you can talk about, you know, what it did to Western Soviet relations longer term. You can talk about it as a prototype for later interventions. Um, you can talk about it as one of the causes of uh, isolationism, American isolationism, um, and British isolationism between the wars. Uh, but it's also just incredibly colourful and dramatic. You know, it's a story that's full of sort of, you know, sled rides across the steppe, across the, you know, sort of Chinese border, you know, sort of fleeing the advancing Red Army. It's, it's full of assassinations and coups and love affairs and, you know, sort of riding at midnight out of burning towns and, um, you know, sort of blacked out steam trains and ambushes. And it's, it's sort of, it's a fabulously um, dramatic story. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot of, it's a grisly story. You know, there's this background of, 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 of atrocities and, um, and, and and famine and typhus and everything, but, but it's also a story of sort of daring do and drama. Well, very dramatic, as you said, um, and useful as well to get that context in terms of kind of what's been written about already and sort of the many different moving pieces here. So to start to unpack I mean, I think some of those pieces, can you help us kind of poke at this idea of the allied troops? Who wanted to invade Russia? Who didn't? Who ends up being involved in this intervention and why? I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit into the, you know, sort of allied relations in general. Um, so when Nicholas II abdicates in February of 1917, you know, the sort of the first revolution of 1917, um, and is replaced by a sort of centre-left civilian provisional government. Um, That is welcomed by Russia's allies. Um, You know, for them, them, the the war with Germany, which is at its peak, is absolutely top priority. And the Russian army had been faltering being beginning to fray, you know, it had been bled dry by three years of fighting already. Um, Nicholas II had become incredibly unpopular, you know, sort of desertions um, were rife. And it was hoped that that this new provisional government would pull the army back together again and re-energise the Eastern Front. And you know, that, of course, didn't happen. It never really managed to take real power because this sort of parallel system of, of, of Soviets um, grew up alongside it. But so, you know, it, fairly quickly it became obvious the provisional government didn't have much of a shelf life. But the fact that it was the Bolsheviks that took over in November of 1917 was a massive shock to everybody because there were this sort of unknown, you know, minor revolutionary group of, you know, what had been until recently sort of exiled or imprisoned sort of pamphleteers. And the diplomatic corps in Petrograd had nothing to do with them at all. And everybody, Russian, you know, mainstream Russian opinion included, assumed they wouldn't last They did, however, thanks to support from the Petrograd and Moscow garrisons, they hung on to the two biggest cities by far of the Russian Empire. Um, you know, alternative governments, you know, committees were formed, alternative governments were declared all around the peripheries, but they hung on to the, the heartland. Um, and what was worse um, for the Allies, what, what was worst of all by far, was that they started immediately started peace talks with the Germans. 
Now, you know, th- this was a necessity, you know, an unpleasant necessity for them in reality. You know, Lenin, Lenin had to, um, he had to give up terror. He had to make peace with the Germans. He knew he couldn't rebuild um, rebuild the army and it was, you know, he wasn't going to be able to hang on to power otherwise. But the Britain, France, America saw it as a heinous betrayal. Um, and angriest of all were the French under Prime Minister Clemenceau, um, who had been who were suffering most in the First World War. You know, they'd lost the most young men. That the large chunk of France was under occupation, and not least, um, it was a massive economic blow to them because a lot of um, s- French, so small savers, had put their savings into Russian government bonds and. The Bolsheviks announced that they weren't going to be honoured. So people lost their savings at a blow. Um, and sort of at the other extreme was Woodrow Wilson of America. And he he was, you know, by sort of nature and experience, anti-military um, action. So he had been burned by an incursion into Mexico in his first term. You know, he'd stayed out of the war against Germany as long as he could. And he generally regarded... Um, Everybody in all, everybody in Russia. He, you know, Russia is a big mess. He talks about a lot of impossible folks. Um, later on, he's trying to, you know, he he's trying to decide what to do about Russia, and he he says, oh, "I've been sweating blood about this, but it it goes to pieces like quicksilver under my hand." You know, he's never happy about it. And in between the two is Lloyd George, who basically havers. And so, you know, as the as the civil war, um, depending on what's happening in the civil war, and you know, if the whites are doing well, he's more positive about it. If they're doing badly, he goes off the idea again. And he ends what he does basically is put in small numbers of troops, but um, he keeps them there. So, you know, if you're if you. You, I, 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 I think this was, you know, in the circumstances and given the knowledge of the time, this was quite a sensible policy. It was sort of, you know, a finger on the scales that might make the difference, but don't let yourself get sucked in too much. But for his opponents on both sides, on the left and on the right, it was no policy at all. It was, it was just sort of indecision. You know, the right wanted him to send in big forces and the left saw the Russian Revolution as a glorious new dawn um, and disagreed with the intervention entirely. Hmm. Thank you for giving us um, that overview, because it isn't uh, a straightforward sort of why are people doing this? What are the different mix of motivations, really? Um, And I think that also helpfully highlights how much sort of World War One plays into this calculus. So what then happens when World War One is over? The, the initial sort of practical um, rationale for the for the intervention for sending troops to Russia at all is to guard stocks of military supplies which the Allies have been sending to the Russian Tsarist army, and which are sitting in various ports. Um, they were sitting awaiting distribution at the time the Bolsheviks took power. So, Archangel up in the north on the White Sea, north of Petrograd, Petersburg, as it is again now, um, is chock-a-block with military supplies. So is Vladivostok um, on the Pacific, you know, at the far end of the Trans-Siberian. So, so right away after the 
after the Bolshevik coup of, of November 1917, small forces are landed in both those places um, simply to keep an eye on things and make sure that these supplies don't get handed by the Bolsheviks to the Germans. What changes Woodrow Wilson's mind is a completely unexpected and extraordinary event, which is something called the Czech Rising. So about 50,000 Czech and Slovak soldiers um, at the, in 1917 were, were, had been fighting with the Tsarist armies against the Austro-Hungarians, who they see as their sort of imperial overlords. So when the, when the Russian army starts to collapse through 1917, they stay organised, they stay with their units, and they've got troop trains, they've got arms, and their one desire is to get back to Europe and, if possible, join in the liberation of Czechoslovakia. And they can't go the short way home westwards because the war's still going on and, you know, Germany and Austria are in the way. Um, so what they do is start moving on their trains east, all the way, 5,000 miles east, towards Vladivostok, where they plan to take ship and sail home. Now, as they do this, and this is we're talking now sort of early spring 1918, they encounter more and more sort of lack of cooperation from these local red militias who've taken, who've got control of most of the railway towns along the route. And in May, Trotsky actually orders these red militias, these little Soviet so-called governments in all these little towns, to arrest the Czechs, disarm them and conscript them into this you know, sort of nascent red army. The Czechs obviously are having absolutely none of that. They take up arms. They, they're, they're well organised. They're experienced soldiers. They quickly knock over these scratch red militias and take control of the entire Trans-Siberian Railway. All the, and include, by July, they've got control of the whole thing, including Vladivostok. And so this completely changes the st- strategic calculus about intervening in Russia. So for, for Wilson, the Czechs are one of his, you know, sort of gallant, small, self-determining nations, as in the 14 points speech. Um, you know, the Western press take up the cause as well. They become immensely sort of, they're, they're, they're hailed as heroes in the West. You know, it's a very romantic story. Um, and more practically speaking, if you have American landings in Vladivostok, you know, the troops will now be sure of a welcome with the Czechs in control. So still rather reluctantly, um, Woodrow Wilson says, yes, we will send troops to Vladivostok and sort of, uh, sort of July, August, September of 1918, you've got, um, you know, quite substantial landings of British, French and um, American troops, both in the north and in uh, and on the Pacific coast of Russia. And that's and that's where you stand, um, you know, as as the First World War in the West draws to an end. And obviously, we have to think about that impact, given the reasons you've told us about for why countries got involved. So how, if we move a few months from where you've just left off, how does the armistice at the end of 1918 impact this intervention? Well, again, it changes the strategic picture completely. So there's there's no longer um, an Eastern Front to sort of dream of rebuilding. There's no longer any need to worry about 
uh, military supplies falling into German hands. However, the Allies have made promises to these various little anti-Bolshevik governments um, in the towns and cities where they've got troops. And it, you know, leaving them in, l- in the lurch would look bad. You know, there's the prestige argument. Um, and in the, in the north, the Allied troops can't co- come home anyway till the spring because, you know, Archangel is frozen up. You have to wait for the thaw. And at this point, you know, a new rationale for the intervention emerges, which is stopping Bolshevism spreading west. You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to sort of imagine it now, but on the right, there was genuine fear in the period 1918 to 1919 of revolution at home. You know, there was trouble, trouble brewing in Ireland and in India. Um, there were big demobilization riots in all the army camp in, in the army camps in Britain and France, you know, there, and there was a wave of strikes. Um, you know, dock workers, miners, um, railway men, and so on in, in, in France and Britain and America. And as somebody, so Henry Wilson, for example, who was head of British Armed Forces, he was chief of Imperial General Staff. I mean, he he had a plan, he formulated a, a plan to, to sort of flood London with tanks. You know, he had genuine fears that there'd be a mass insurrection. Um and so the intervention in Russia, public opinion is always split on inter- intervention in Russia. You know, there's the hands-off Russian movement, which is virulently against it and gets lots of fo- followers in, in, in Britain and America. You know, there are rallies in New York and, and rallies in the Albert Hall and so on. But there's also a, a, a powerful, influential sort of right-wing constituency for doing everything to, to try and overthrow Lenin and Trotsky. Hmm. Thank you for explaining um, kind of how those elements develop. If we, however, think not just about kind of the perspectives from those doing the intervening, what about the claim made by uh, Soviet historians since that this is a colonial war? How might we think about those claims and the interaction between kind of these big wigs on the other side and the people actually carrying this out? You're absolutely right. Soviet propaganda painted it as a sort of capitalist, imperialist war. Um, And there are lots of rather wonderful cartoons showing this sort of, you know, beast businessman with a sort of straining waistcoat and a top hat and a fat cigar, you know, sort of pulling the strings, you know, behind the the puppet white generals. Um, It it certainly wasn't a colonial war um, in in the sense that the West had any intention of permanently annexing Russian territory. Um, They didn't. Um, But they did use some of the techniques of colonial war. So they'd raise local levies, usually by, you know, by offering good rations, you know, to the sort of starving local population. And they would put um, sort of complacent, you know, sort of cooperative local leaders in place, and then and then get rid of them and replace them with somebody else if if they stepped out of line. and at least twice the sort of military men on the ground did this, you know, on, on their own initiative without sort of, without say-so from London. Um, the, the, first, the first example was in Archangel in the summer, a man called General Poole, who cooperated with local 
Russians of right-wing officers to get rid of a socialist civilian government that we'd been supporting. And that was actually reversed in a couple of days under diplomatic pressure because all the Allied ambassadors were in Archangel sort of perched there, wondering whether to go home now. Um, but then more, uh, m- much more importantly, um, General Knox, who was in charge, Alfred Knox, who was an Anglo-Irishman, like right-wing Anglo-Irishman, you know, Anglo-Irish like lots of British top brass at the time. He was in charge of the British military mission in Siberia and he was um, he got became very close with a cabal of right-wing officers in Omsk um, where again we were notionally supporting a left-wing um, civilian government and he helped them overthrow that government and um, replace it with somebody called Admiral Kolchak um, who was a youngish star of the old Tsarist navy um, and led the thereafter led white armies in Siberia um, not very well. He he had no um, you know experience whatsoever of sort of politics or administration. They totally overwhelmed him. Um, but but the other the other thing which happens about the same time at the end of nineteen eighteen is is. Churchill is promoted back into the cabinet. Lloyd George brings back Churchill. And Churchill is is passionately anti-Bolshevik. Um, he's also extremely keen to rebuild his military reputation after the disaster of the Dardanelles. And the, you know, the remaining field for doing so, now that the war with Germany is over, is, is Russia. And thereafter, he becomes the intervention's chief cheerleader not only at home, but also internationally, you know, sort of via all the peace conferences which are going on in Paris. I mean, so much so that the British press calls it Mr. Mr. Churchill's private war. And very much at his behest, we send then in the spring of 1919 a new force down to the south, down to southern Russia and Ukraine to support Denikin and his volunteer army, which is the sort of conservative, the biggest of the, the sort of conservative white Russian forces. Um, at play. So there's a lot going on then at the kind of high politics level, which I think most of the time we can generally say if Churchill's there, then that's very much what's going on. But what was it like on the ground? What was it like to be a foreign soldier, foot soldier even, in this conflict? Well, I was lucky. You know, there, there are lots of great diaries um, and there are letters home which tend to sort of paint a Sometimes they're very frank. Sometimes it's sort of, you know, they're trying to reassure mum back home. Um, so, so less so. But, you know, there are lots of terrific diaries, uh, but, you know, many of which, thankfully, are, are have now been digitised and are online. Um, and, you know, they, they, painted it, they painted an extraordinary picture. So in Siberia and in the south, um, the Allies were chiefly sort of training up Russian troops and supplying them with equipment, so sort of getting guns to the front and teaching Russians how to use them um, and sort of doing sort of general liaison work. But in the north, uh, so in, around Archangel, they were deep into really nasty fighting, um, particularly through the winter of 1918 to 19. So they, the, 
the, the, the, the first general up there, this man called Poole, he overextends his forces. He, he sends them hundreds of miles south down the railway, the Archangel Petrograd Railway, and also down the river Davina and its tributaries. So when winter sets in, they find themselves, you get these scattered troops defending little tiny villages in the middle of forest, in the middle of nowhere. And they, you know, the, the, the temperatures plunge to minus 20 or below, you've got near 24 hour dark, you've got very poor communications, um, you get patrols, you know, constantly being ambushed, you never know whether the villagers who you're living alongside are loyal or not. Uh, you know, some, and some very nasty battles and some and some um, some very sort of narrow squeak retreats as well, particularly from a town called Shenkursk on the River Varga. Um, it's a really lovely place. I've been there. It hasn't changed much since. Um, and, you know, the, the Americans in particular, you can see in the diaries, the American just ordinary um ordinary soldiers are particularly angry at being there. So unlike unlike the Brits and the French, who are sort of hardened soldiers, who've you know, seen service in France, these guys are essentially civilians. You know, they've had a few weeks training back home in Michigan. They've been brought over, been told they're going to be fighting the Kaiser, and now they find themselves fighting as they see it to resort, restore, you know, the sort of bloodstained autocratic czar. And um, they're extremely rese- resentful of being there at all, and indeed, they're, they're you know that, and and it's very unpopular at home as well. Back in the states, there's lots of bring our boys home sort of demos, and so Wilson brings them back as soon as the as soon as the ice melts in the spring of 1919. But the Brits and the French stay on, and. You know, they they too they too are extremely resentful. You know, once 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 the, they they see this as a pointless sideshow. You know, the war's won. Why can't we go home? And increasingly, they mutiny, and they don't mutiny in the sense of actually sort of scragging their officers. They mutiny in the sense of refusing to obey orders. So they won't get back in their trains when they're being sent back to the front after some R and R in Archangel, or they told to attack some village. They simply sit down and refuse to do it and and um they, they they that whole northern expedition is 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 wound up in september of 1919 hmm. to be honest reading the descriptions and of course you're giving us a very helpful highlights version of the book for anyone who wants to know more about those diaries for example that you found there's loads of detail in the book and reading it, I can understand why they didn't want to be there. It doesn't <laughs> exactly sound like a great experience. So thank no, you for telling us a bit about that. Is there something you'd you. like to add? Well, I, I was going to say, from the officer's point of view, um, they did actually have a lot of fun. Uh, you know, in, in, the nor- the nor- in the north there was nasty fighting, but elsewhere much less so. And you know, in the places they were billeted, in these towns and small cities, cities where they were billeted, probably running a sort of machine gun training school or something like that, um, you know, they were fated by the local and sort of refugee middle classes, Russian middle classes, you know, first of all, because it saw them as saviours and also as potentially, if the worst come, 
came to the worst as, you know, tickets out of the country, you know, useful contacts to have. So read their diaries. And it's an absolute whirl of parties and picnics and outings. And, um, you know, sort of they go to the races, there are charity balls, they watch sort of, you know, Madame So-and-So's ballet school puts on a show for them, everybody stands up and sings God Save the King, you know. Um, you know, they, they have a great time. <laughs> And, um, you know, in between some sort of unpleasant episodes and then at the, at the very end, you get these, you know, these sort of mass retreats down the railway lines, um, you know, which they're swept up in as well and they're back onto the troop ships. Um, but they, you know, they, they have a, they have in their memoirs, there's, you know, there's a strong incentive to paint, to sort of, to give the whole thing a sort of light-hearted Jolly Japes gloss because it minimises sort of the shame at having deserted allies and friends and it does it minimizes shame at the failure um but nonetheless you know they're you know that when they they talk about it as having been a picnic or something of a comic opera that's a very common phrase you know that there is an element of truth to that you know it wasn't it was compared to the trenches compared to being in france just carrying in a trench being shelled um you know, it 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 was it 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 wasn't it it was much it was much um it was much less dangerous and it was much more exciting. You were sort of it was much. I mean, it just was it was it was it was a picnic in comparison. Mm. What an interesting kind of bit of context to think of, right? Oh, wait, you could have been here, but actually, this is where you've ended up instead. So uh, fascinating to kind of see that. And the phrase comic opera really does uh, convey quite a lot. So thank you for adding that in. Can I ask you to tell us about something that we haven't touched on so far, but is an important part of the book, an important part of what's happening here? Can you talk us through a bit what role anti-Semitism played in this conflict? Yes. Um, so this is this is the really dark part of the book. Um, so... So, you, you know, there's, Russia has a long history of anti-Semitism, obviously, like the rest of Europe. Um, however, whereas in you know, the rest of Europe, by the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the, the ghettos were, you know, long ago history. Um, in Russia still had in place this whole panoply of discriminatory laws against Jews. So there were... You know, you could only live in the pale of settlement. You couldn't live in the big cities. You were banned from any sort of government job. Uh, you couldn't own land. You, uh, you know, it was very hard to get into university. There were quotas on numbers of Jews who were allowed into the universities. Um, and this, and these, you know, one of the reasons for friction, one of the reasons Nicholas II was so disliked in America was that they even applied these rules to Jewish American citizens <laughs> visiting Russia. Um, and Jews were also traditionally scapegoats in times of crisis. So there were pogroms in 1881, following the assassination of Alexander II, and again 1904 to five. Uh, you know, during those pro pro democracy demonstrations, um, and they were po they were pogroms. That you know, there was some there was violence, there was some killing, um, but it was mostly beating people up and destroying property. Um, a new round of pogroms breaks up, breaks out in 1919 during the Civil War on a totally different scale. Uh, we see, we, we we estimate, you know, it's very hard to get to, 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 to come up with firm estimates, but somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 um, Jews, Jewish civilians were, were massacred. Um, and there are also lots and lots of mass rapes. 
and this is in Ukraine, and all sides participated. Um, So the Ukrainian National Army, the various warlords, the Polish army, um, the Red Army, but also the whites. And we, the British forces on the ground were turned a blind eye, turned a total blind eye. They were on the whole, you know, they were they were shocked. You know, they, they, when when working alongside their sort of white colleagues, they they were shocked and um, you know, disgusted really at the level of white anti-Semitism. You know, they they felt the Russians really obsessional about this. Um, but for for Russians, for, 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 you know, for in white propaganda, this Jew equals Bolshevik trope. You know, the idea that the Jews made the revolution is all the Jews' fault. You know, was it was a central message. And, you know, the slogans of Save Russia, Beat the Yids, you know, took the place of a real political programme. And it also excused them from self-examination, excused them from looking properly at why the old system was so unpopular, why it collapsed so quickly and why they themselves now are having such difficulty attracting recruits. Um, You know, the... But the Brits themselves were sort of casually anti-Semitic. You read the diaries and letters, and they're they're scattered with sort of witless jibes. Um, but uh, and they and they they they, t- they turned a blind eye. You know that the mass the, the massacres have happened off stage in the smaller towns, not in the bigger places where the British had headquarters. But they. You know, but 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 where they were, were, these bigger places were full of refugees from the the shteln, um, where the atrocities were taking place, and you know nobody made any effort to to to, to find out what was actually going on. Nobody made any effort to restrain the restrain the whites, and. There's one exception. I found one young major in Odessa, and he was on a sort of diplomatic mission up to Vinitsa, which is a sort of um, a town in sort of central western Ukraine. They were they were in talks with 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 a West Ukrainian army to try and build an alliance between them and the whites. And he threw off his sort of Russian officer interpreter come minder and insisted on talking to Jewish representatives and pogrom survivors um, himself directly, you know, doing best he could in French. And we only know he did this because the minder complained about it to his headquarters, to British headquarters, saying, you know, he's asking tactless political questions. Um, you know, he's he's harming Anglo-Russian relations and he should be sent home. But this but this particular man was absolutely the exception to that that proved the rule. And this denialism, it 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 was um paralleled in London. So news news of what was happening did get out via Jewish organisations. And so Jewish representatives in London would put together these dossiers, these data saying so many people killed here and here and here and so on, and present them um, to the government. And they were invariably brushed off. They were told that these excesses, you know, excesses was the euphemism, were either untrue, a fabrication, or they were exaggerated, or Jews have brought it 
or you know brought violence on themselves by being um, pro the revolution or you know one one source I found that talked about their nervous panicking had fan, fanned the violence. And in the House of Commons, Churchill evades questions and Lloyd George does nothing but make sort of one or two rather sort of peevish complaints to him, urging him to restrain his friends, as he calls them. But at no point do we tell Denikin um, the head of white Russian forces in the south, that he we will withdraw aid unless the massacres cease. And there's never even any discussion in cabinet about doing this. And you know, I I I I found that when I was, you know, this hasn't been written about much at all, and I was really shocked by it. I mean, obviously, the nineteen nineteen pogroms are you know completely overshadowed since by the Holocaust. Um, you know, one mustn't be a historical one knows that anti-Semitism was widespread at the time, but it you know it shocked me, and for me, it answered the question: you know, was the intervention worth it at a stroke? No, it's something we should be ashamed of. You know, that we were arming, supplying, financing the armies that committed these massacres. It's extraordinary. Mm. A very important part of the book. So thank you for sharing that with us. And of course, there's much more detail um, about the specifics of it in the book as well for anyone who wants to learn this history um, that is so little talked about. So with all of these factors going on, um, in some ways, I was surprised to be reminded by your book that this war didn't last for, I don't know, a, five years, a decade. There, there's a lot happening here. Um, but the war does end. When did the outcome of the conflict become clear? Um, let me think how much I want to say. For the whites, you know, the point at which it looks at so they might actually win is October 1919. So Denikin advances from the south um, to within 250 miles of Moscow. He takes a town called Oriol. And the white general in the, on the Baltic, Udenich, he advances on Petrograd and gets to its outskirts. In fact, exactly the same spot that Hitler gets to 20 years later. But thereafter, it's all retreats. And in November, Kolchak abandons Omsk in Western Siberia, starts fleeing east along the Trans-Siberian. Um, in January, he's captured and then executed at Irkutsk, about halfway um, along. Um, so Denikin retreats south uh, and he, he abandons Taganrog, his HQ, on the 1st of January, on New Year's Day. And... At the end of March, he evacuates the remainder of his army, his collapsed army, um, from Novorossiysk uh, in the northeastern corner of the Black Sea. And, uh, you know, together with these flights along the two railways, you know, you've got together with the armies fleeing south and east, you've got massive civilian um you know, sort of refugee movements as well. And you get a horrible, you know, you've got these incredibly crowded conditions, these incredibly crowded refugee trains, um, incredibly crowded railway station buildings and so on, and all 
along these routes, you've got people dying of typhus, you know, sort of um, frozen corpses, you know, thrown out of the trains and just sort of sitting there in stacks alongside the track. Also starving horses, abandoned horses. Um, and people, lo- people lose each other. People, you know, lose... lose t- get sort of get separated in the crowds and lose touch with relatives and um something that a lot of the a lot of the sort of allied officers sort of caught up in these refugee flights talk about is the the walls on railway stations being plastered with little handwriting handwritten notes saying sort of you know masha um if you see this please meet me at the church in um sort of krasnoyarsk or something the one with the red roof or you know it'll sort of oh, has anyone seen my little boy age three blonde hair you know i lost him at such and such place you know these heartrending little notes and sort of so that is the end that the, the evacuation from novorossiysk in March of 1920, um, so all the Brits evacuate as well, and they're, they're all evacuated on British, um, and sort of British chartered ships, the whole White Army, and then they're plonked in Crimea. That's the end. That's the end of the intervention. Um, it's not quite the end of the civil war because there's a, as there's, there's a sort of white last stand in Crimea under a, under a general called a very brutal general called Vrangel. Um, but he evacuates to in November of 1920. So that that is the very end of the civil war. You know, at that point, the Bolsheviks have have conclusively won. Hmm. Interesting to see the kind of different pieces here at the end, just like at the beginning, that it's not straightforward really at any point in this story. Um, how then has it been remembered? Um in various places across time, what what has been the kind of longer term side of this? Well, it was in in the West. It was swept under the carpet because obviously it was a humiliating failure. So no campaign medals were issued, no official histories were written or published, and the deaths, which weren't very many, only about two thousand people, and most many of those from from mum you know, disease or accidents. The deaths were sort of bracketed in with the, you know, the vastly larger death toll from the war against Germany. And and if you look at British, um, you know, war, first world war memorials, you'll just amongst those sort of, you know, Ypres and so on, all the names from France and Flanders, you'll suddenly occasionally see Murmansk. Um, And it's just in there as though this person too had been fighting the Germans. In fact, they were fighting the Bolsheviks. Um, and the the politicians involved uh, distanced themselves. They blamed it on each other. Um, you know, Lloyd George blamed Churchill for pulling him into it. Um, Woodrow Wilson, you know, died shortly afterwards of a stroke, but his biographers did the distancing for him. They sort of exaggerated how unwilling he had been uh, initially to get involved. And the generals involved often just completely left it out of their memoirs. So, for example, Knox, he he publishes his wartime memoirs, but he because he'd been with the been with the Tsarist army, he'd been liaison with the Tsarist army um, through the through the First World War. But he breaks off his published diary um, in in at the end of nineteen seventeen. He leaves out the intervention entirely, and and you know other 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 other. Generals, they just sort of give it, give it a sentence or two in their memoirs before moving on to the next thing they were involved with. 
Now, the exception to all this is, of course, Churchill, who defends the intervention to the end of his life. You know, he's still he carries on making speeches saying, if only the political will had been there, it could have been a success. You know, this horrible Soviet government could have been overthrown and history could have been different. So in Soviet Russia, in contrast, uh, the intervention is a core part of history. You know, it's taught to every school child. You know, the, the the imperialist West tried to strangle the revolution in its cradle. You know, the whites were traitors, puppets of foreign powers. And very good use was made of uh, sort of intervention sites. Uh, most notably um, an island uh, north of Archangel at the mouth of the Davina River estuary. It's about 40 miles north of Archangel called called Mudjug. It's basically just a sort of big sand spit, um, uh, sort of big sort of sort of slightly wooded sand spit. And at the beginning of the intervention in summer 1918, Poole uh, created a prison camp there for civilian prisoners who were deemed politically dangerous, you know, the politicals. And that over the subsequent winter, we basically, the British forces there basically forgot about it. Uh, It was left in charge of a couple of sort of um, junior French officers who who were sadistic and drunk and stole the prisoners' rations, um, you know, beat them, put them in unheated underground punishment cells. And... Sort of over a hundred um, of about three hundred prisoners there died, and the, you know it, it, it was it was it was it was a genuine war crime. It was um, you know the rumours did begin to get to to get to to get through to Archangel that prisoners were dying of scurvy, but British command there never did anything about it, or certainly nothing effective. Um, and you know th- this this place was turned into a sort of cartoonishly you know propagandistic, but you know, essentially fact-based museum. And you can see it's all sort of semi-collapsed now, but you can see the you can see the displays and so on. And, you know, for, for, for generations, you know, Russian school kids were toured around it and taught that, you know, this is this is what, you know, this is what the intervention was about. This is what the White Guard, the anti-Bolshevik forces were about. And the sort of the personal memoirs um, are very interesting. The the British and American ones are noticeably different from each other. So that the British ones, there's a sort of palpable sense of uneasiness, of, of, of shame sort of lurking just underneath this sort of jolly japes surface. Um, but the American ones are straightforwardly angry. You know, the, the intervention was a misbegotten waste of money and lives. Um, America should never have been involved. And interviewed later in life, uh, veterans often compare the whole thing to Vietnam. Hmm. What a comparison to make. Thank you for taking us through those different ways in which it's been remembered or not. Are there any lessons you think we can take from this war and your book? Yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, the sort of the, the very obvious one is the same one that sort of Napoleon and Hitler learned, you know, don't invade Russia. Um, but more broadly, uh, sort of be cautious about getting into other people's civil wars. 
you know, it'll be more complicated than you think. Um, your allies may turn out to be as bad as the enemy. You know, your own troops will start asking why they why they're there, and it won't be popular at home. Um, and you know, as I was writing it, um, it, it, you know, that there was the American flight from Kabul, and that you know those pictures of of, of Afghans sort of hanging on to the tail wing of you know departing uh, aircraft you know it was absolutely reminiscent of what I was reading and writing about about um, you know people and sort of trying to swim out to the you know the allied troop ships as they left Novorossiysk you know these sort of hysterical crowds all sort of left behind on the quay sides um, the, the, what I really want to stress though um, can't do too strongly is that the wrong lesson to draw is that because sending aid to Ukraine a century ago failed, it's going to fail again now. Um, you know, the Ukraine war is not a civil war and the Ukrainians are not the whites. Um, you know, the Ukrainians are staunchly democratic, uh, sort of, you know, a, a, a coherent nation um, have a strong liberal democratic political program you know have proved have proved their commitment to it again and again ever since the orange revolution in 2004 you know the the actual heir to the whites with his you know his ultra nationalism his desire to rebuild the empire is putin and cross fingers he'll fall for the same sort of reasons the whites did you know because he's grotesquely corrupt, his regime's grotesquely corrupt because his rule's based on violence and because his promise of Russian greatness is hollow. Uh, It doesn't have any policies behind it. Um, A century ago, the West should have got out of Russia quicker. All the intervention did was actually prolong a nasty civil war. Um, But today we need to keep supporting Ukraine until Putin goes. If we want a stable Europe, in fact, we don't have a choice. And, you know, and I hope and pray that America continues to lead the way in that. Hmm. Some powerful way to end this interview. Thank you for finishing off with that. And for any listeners who want to get into all of these details and learn more about this history, again, the book is titled A Nasty Little War, The Western Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution. Anna, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.